Well, good morning again, Redeemer Church. My name is Dave Furman. I, as one of the elders here, have the privilege of often preaching God's Word. And so I'm delighted that we're back in the book of Romans. And you hopefully received one of these sermon cards on your seat as you came in today. I'll be preaching through Romans 4 all the way through chapter 7 by Christmas. Our friend and former pastor Scott Zeller uh, is preaching in October. You'll notice other staff and elders preaching a Christmas series by Pastor Morgs. And you'll notice ending the year and beginning the year with a couple sermons, Pastor Chris Lejeune. We provide this to you for many reasons. Here's just a few of them. One, for your prayers, for the preacher, for the message, for the congregation's response, for your own heart and response. Uh, two, for your preparation. You can read in your devotional times or maybe read it to your family at dinner. Be in a community group. Most of our groups study the passage that's going to be preached ahead of time. The hope is that you've been able to study the text and be in the text, and then you show up here on Sunday, and you sit under the preaching of the sermon, and it all kind of comes together and clicks. And three, for your invitations. Now, I want to encourage you to always invite your friends, neighbors, coworkers, those who you know to come and be with us on a Sunday morning. But there might be a particular text or a particular title that sticks out that might be good for a specific friend, maybe for their first time uh, to come and join us. So we hope this is uh, helpful to you to have the schedule of sermons all the way down through January the 7th. Well, today we find ourselves back in Romans. This is a letter that God used to save Christian heroes like Martin Luther and John Wesley and Augustine. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones preached 372 sermons on Romans. So I don't know, what do you think, Redeemer? Should we try and break his record? I think this is sermon 18 or so. We have a long way to go. My first pastor, Tommy, called Paul's letter to the Romans the greatest document ever penned. Well, Paul likely writes this letter during his third missionary journey. You could say Paul's ministry was a series of mission trips. He would go on these trips to disciple, well, first to evangelize, preach, disciple, train. He would establish churches in key cities in the region. When Paul writes to Rome, it's not his final destination. He says, I'm going to Jerusalem and then Spain, but I'm planning a layover in between. As I've said before, our city is famous for layovers. We've all had friends visit us on their way somewhere else. In fact, tomorrow I'm hosting a couple friends, a couple pastors on a layover. Our family's Dubai story started on a layover in the summer of 2004. All was okay until it appeared to us that our driver was taking us into the middle of the desert. He drove us all the way down south. There was nothing outside of our windows but sand and more sand and even more sand. And we wondered, are we being kidnapped here? Where is this driver taking us? Where are we going? And eventually we got there and we saw seven small hotels on the beach. Construction happening everywhere. It was down in the marina. None of the skyscrapers built Yet, 20 years ago, there was a lot of desert between the Millennium Plaza Hotel and the marina. You may have your own Dubai layover story. The joke often is what starts with a layover 
It goes then to a one or two year commitment to work here and then all of a sudden we find ourselves here for 15 or 20 years and we're still here. Well, Paul's planning an intentional layover in Rome. He's never visited the church there. He didn't start the church. And he writes this letter in AD 56 or 57 to let them know that he hopes they'll partner with him in the gospel ministry. A brief reminder of the main point and outline of the book, again, informed by my seminary professor, Dr. James Allman, our short summary of the book is this. God has welcomed us into his family, and so we are to welcome others into his family for the glory of God. This is incredible. God... God has welcomed us into his family, and so we are to now welcome others into his family for the glory of God. And we see in the first 11 chapters, Paul reveals specifically how Christ welcomes us into his family. And because of that welcome, chapters 12 and following, believers are enabled to live together as family and to extend the welcome to others. Bracketed by an introduction in chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, and a conclusion with most of chapter 16 included there, you have two main sections and five subsections. The first main section is God has welcomed us. There's condemnation. We saw that in chapter 1 on through most of chapter 3. The Romans and all of us, Jews and Gentiles, have sinned and deserve death and judgment. And then there's justification. It's the section we're in now. It means to be declared righteous. We've sinned. We deserve death. But Jesus died and he rose from the dead to save us. Sanctification, chapters 6 through 8. The process of which we become more holy, more like Jesus. And now after the inclusion of both Jew and Gentile, one might ask, what about God's promises to Israel? Are they null and void? Paul gives an explanation in chapters 9 through 11. Both are saved, and the purposes of God don't contradict God's purposes to Israel. First 11 chapters tell us that all are welcomed into the family of God in Christ. The second section, we are to welcome others. All of Romans has application. We'll even see that today in our portion of Scripture in chapter 4. But chapters 12 and following have a specific focus, a laser-sharp focus on applying what Paul writes in the first 11 chapters. God welcomes us as family, but how do we now live together as a family? Well, today we find ourselves in that section on justification. If you have a Bible or a bulletin, turn to Romans chapter 4. The words won't be on the screens, but if you have a bulletin, Or better yet, if you have a Bible, turn to Romans. It's in the New Testament. You have the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. You'll come to this letter or epistle written by the Apostle Paul, inspired by God. We'll be looking at verses 13 through 25. So 13 on through the rest of the chapter. In the first part of the chapter, Paul showed us that both the Old Testament and the New Testament teach the same truth about salvation. He called two expert witnesses to the stand. 
Abraham and David. Abraham, our forefather in the faith. Abraham, the, the father of the Jews. And David, the greatest king of the Jews. Well, our verses today continue this great chapter on faith. And the focus here is going to remain on Abraham. It's also going to include his wife, Sarah. So the focus will be on Abraham, his wife, Sarah. And we'll see four things about faith. So if you're taking notes, here's our outline this morning. Four short but hopefully sweet points about faith. Number one, the scope of faith. We'll see the scope of faith. Number two, the source of faith. Three, the strength of faith. And then finally, four, saving faith. Scope, source, strength, saving faith. Well, let's look at the first point, the scope of faith. Verse 13, look there with me. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Now, Paul begins our passage today actually pointing out the obvious. The law can't save because Abraham didn't even have the law when he was saved. When was Abraham counted as righteous? 500 years before the law was given to Moses. He couldn't obey the law. There was no law. How was Abraham saved? Well, by faith in the promises of God, by faith in the Savior to come. No, law and faith can't both save at the same time. They don't go together. It's like oil and water. It's like oil, or I should say like our laptops and water. You've had an accident, maybe like me, where your laptop was engulfed in H2O, or like brushing your teeth and orange juice. Have you tried this? It's horrible. You brush your teeth, you go down to breakfast. The first thing you do, drink some orange juice, and it's a morning disaster. It's like the gym and eating pizza. Now, I'll say this. If you work out a lot, it ought to be okay to eat some delicious pizza. I'll leave that there. But these things don't generally mix. Wrongly applied, because there is a place for the law, Wrongly applied, the law and faith don't mix. That's what Paul is telling us here. Law and faith don't go together in the ways that the law keepers were saying. There must have been objections to this from so-called the law keepers, Pharisees, Sadducees, and others. Verse 14, for if it is the, inher the inheritance of the law, the inheritance of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. Now, Jewish theology argued that following the law brought about the promises of God. That following the law brought about being an heir of God. But Paul's saying the law was never meant to save. No, the law is a good thing. But Abraham received a better promise hundreds of years earlier. Meaningless promises if it's now the law that saves. 
Why? Verse 15, the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. There was no law in Abraham's time. Of course, that doesn't mean there was no sin. We know Adam and Eve sinned. We know others have sinned. But as one theologian says, it was not explicitly recognized as sin. Romans 3 even tells us, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Once the law came to Moses, sin was clearly identified along with its consequences. The very wrath of God. So Paul is saying here, the law didn't save. What the law does is it served to reveal the wickedness of humans. Now, there are many purposes of the law, various uses of the law, one of which was to be a mirror, a mirror to show us that we are wicked, to show us our need for salvation. This is likely what Paul is saying in the phrase, where there is no law, there is no transgression. Paul's not saying if someone doesn't know the law, they can't sin. But transgression carries the meaning of a deliberate, knowing breach of a boundary. Here's an illustration the late Tim Keller would, would use. If you trespass on private property, you're guilty. You're guilty of trespassing. But if you see a sign there that says, uh, keep off private property, no trespassing, and you trespass, then you are a transgressor. You knew the law explicitly. It was there in the sign, and you broke it. Now, knowing the law makes you, in a sense, doubly guilty. Not only does the law not save, it makes our guilt even more obvious, and it stirs up God's wrath even further. Verse 16, Paul concludes this first section. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent, and the adherent I'll get that, of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Now, the promise to Abraham points back to Genesis 15, verse 5. Outside, God tells Abraham, look, Look up at the night sky. Look up towards heaven and count the stars, if you're even able to count them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Like the number of the stars. That's what your offspring will be like. No stipulations. No law. No thing to be followed. Just a promise. It was faith in God's promises, offspring numbering the stars, the pinnacle of which was Jesus, the Son of God and Savior of the world. God's law shows our sin, which brings wrath, but God promises grace for all who have faith. This is why Abraham is called the father of us all. Jews and Gentiles, everyone, we're all in the same boat. Sinners who need to be saved by grace through faith in Christ. That's the first point, the scope of faith. Anyone can have saving faith. And everyone needs saving faith. Well, second, we'll briefly look at this second point, the source of faith. So we've seen the scope of faith. That's for everyone. Now we'll see the source of faith, point number two. And notice the language Paul uses in verse 17. As it is written, I... Paul is quoting God from Genesis 17. 
I, God, have made you the father of many nations. And then Paul adds, in the presence of the God in whom he believed, this same God who made Abraham the father of many nations is the God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Now, God made. Now, this is incredible. God made. It was God who made Abraham the father of many nations. Abraham didn't earn it. And in case we forgot, it's the same God who gives life to the dead. So Paul is writing here in these words. Now, none of us like to think of the dead or none of us like to think about death ourselves. I mean, decades ago, one famous actor said, it's not that I'm afraid to die. It's just that I don't want to be there when it happens. But see, death isn't a problem for God because he raises the dead. Nothingness is not a problem for God because he created the world by calling it into existence by his very word. As the prophet Jeremiah cried out to God, nothing is too hard for you. Church, all good things come from our Father who is in heaven above. Even Abraham's faith was a gift. I'm going to say that again. Even faith, even Abraham's faith It's a gift. There's no other way to explain it. Look at verse 18. In hope, he, speaking of Abraham, believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. Abraham believed in God. Now, what does the phrase in hope he believed against hope mean? That's a curious phrase. Well, first of all, God's promise was for generations to come. Descendants and offspring in the future. And that a seed or a savior would come through his family tree. This faith was filled with hope, but it wasn't something he could see. And it was a faith which made no sense at all. God was making promises to Abraham, which as Abraham must have thought about, it seemed impossible. Why? Well, that leads us into our third point. We'll spend more time here this morning. Number three, the strength of faith. We've seen the scope of faith, and it includes everyone. We've seen the source of faith. It's God himself. And now we'll see the strength of faith. Number three, look at verse 19. He did not weaken in faith. This is speaking of Abraham. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Now, what was Abraham's hope against hope? It was that Abraham would have a child. Abraham and Sarah would have a child together. Now, this might not seem like a big deal if you don't know the book of Genesis or if you've never read that verse before, but if you do, well, this is incredible. Look there at verse 19. Paul says, Abraham's body was as good as dead. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't want anyone telling me that I'm as good as dead. It's not exactly a flattering comment or a flattering description, is it? Abraham, hey, old man, you're a dead man walking. Well, in all fairness, he was about 100 years old. Now, just 
for the sake of seeing. If you're here today and you're 100 years old or older, raise your hand. Just raise it high. Raise it high, really high, so we can see. Look around. Well, we have none here today, just like I thought. Now, interesting fact, there are 316,000 hundred-plus-year-olds living in the world today. But that wasn't the only problem in the text. Sarah, Abraham's wife, while maybe not quite a centenarian, she was old too. And barrenness here, when speaking of the womb, has the idea of deadness. Abraham was as good as dead, and Sarah's womb was dead. God was telling these two who had a kind of double death that they would have a child who would lead to offspring, plural, like the stars in the sky, and an offspring single who would be the savior of the world. Verse 20 tells us they believed. They believed that the God who created the whole world would create a baby in Sarah's womb. No unbelief made Abraham waver. Verse 21, they were fully convinced God would do it. Verse 22, it was by Abraham's faith that he was saved. It was counted to him as righteousness. Now, we often say this at Redeemer, that weakness is the way so that God gets all the glory. It's a common phrase we use here. We see that in our passage. God used a man as good as dead, a womb which was dead, to bring about a child. The situation seemed hopeless. Maybe you can think of a time when you were in a hopeless situation. Maybe you're in one now. You feel like there's no way out. Maybe a health scare, a disability, chronic pain with no path forward. Work. Some of you have been interviewing for job after job for what feels like forever, only to prepare for interviews and then be turned down. You might pray, How long, O Lord? Loneliness, you pray for a friend, but none comes. Or maybe you pray for reconciliation with an old friend, but it's only met with silence. A mean boss, family conflict, stress at school, an empty bank account, debt, your young child in rebellion, your older adult child in rebellion, aging parents. I could go on. Faith in these situations is challenging, isn't it? Now, we, we can look to Abraham who hoped against all hope. He believed when there was zero chance that he and Sarah could conceive a baby on their own. A fellow believer, we have the same God that Abraham had. We have the same God who has the power to create life who's at work in us today. Have faith in God. Follow Abraham's example. And I promise you, if you follow God, he will be with you. Either, number one, he'll provide for you the godly desires of your heart. Or, and don't miss this, number two, he'll provide for you the strength to carry on when you don't get 
the desires of your heart when times are hard and challenging. There's no guarantee God will answer our prayers in the same way we pray them. That would make God a, a kind of genie. Our wish is his command. But this much is true. We can hold on to hope because no matter what happens, if you have faith in God, he will bring you to the mountaintops and he will carry you through the dark valleys of the shadow of death. Christ is our hope in life and death. Well, Abraham was a man of faith. But we can't stop there, can we? I titled this point, The Strength of Faith. And you could interpret that in two ways. Yes, Abraham had strong faith. That's what Paul is saying here. But again, if you've read your Bible, you know that's not the whole story. It wasn't actually the strength of Abraham's faith that saved him. Because Abraham's faith wasn't always strong, was it? Verse 20 tells us that Abraham never wavered in his faith. Is that even true? Maybe you talked about this in your community groups this past week. Abraham had faith, but he was also a sinner. Genesis 20 records that King Abimelech caught 99-year-old Abraham in a lie about his wife. He told the king Sarah was only his sister, and yes, they were related, but he hid the part about their marriage out of a fear for his own life. And this wasn't just a one-time deception. In Genesis 20, verse 13, Abraham admits that he's also asked Sarah to lie, and that they've been telling this lie ever since they left his father's house over 20 years earlier. Not a one-time deception, not a one-time little white lie. And not only that, Sarah laughed when God gave them this promise. How could I give birth to a son and nurse a child at my age? And she laughed. Abraham and Sarah even decided that God's divine plan needed a little human help, a human intervention. They thought they'd help out God by having Abraham conceive a child with Sarah's maidservant, Hagar. But God said, no, that's not the promised son. The plan backfired, which our plans always do when we take matters into our own hands. Never waver? Is that true of Abraham? Well, first of all, none of us are perfect, even our heroes in the Bible. Clearly, Paul isn't saying Abraham is perfect. In certain ways, Abraham did struggle. But God did bring about the promised child, and they named him Isaac, which means he laughed. No doubt Sarah understood the irony. She laughed at God's promise, but now laughs a laugh of joy for God's provision through her barren womb. Always remembering time of her lack of faith, but then looking at God's gracious provision through her barren womb. Now, what is this passage saying? Well, a man like Abraham and a woman like Sarah could never be righteous by works. 
The father of our faith was saved by faith, albeit an imperfect faith. It's amazing that Paul can say Abraham didn't waver in his faith, even though there were ups and there were downs in his life. What an encouragement to us struggling saints today. The Bible never hides or covers our heroes' sins or struggles. The text never says our faith has to be perfect. And using Abraham's example, it actually says the opposite. The father of our faith, the one known as the father of our faith, the father of many nations, struggled with his faith. Now, Christian, I wonder how you feel about your faith today. Do you at times doubt your salvation? You believe, but you think, okay, do I believe enough? Is my faith strong enough? Am I really, really a Christian? Youth and tweens, maybe this is you. If you or anyone here feels this way, let me speak directly to you right now. Listen carefully to these words. I shared them earlier in the Romans series. It's not the strength of your faith that saves you. It's the object of your faith that saves let me, let me just say that again. It's not the strength. It's not the strength of your faith that saves you. It's the object of your faith which saves. We don't place our faith in faith. Our faith is not in faith. You see what I'm getting at? Maybe an illustration that I shared towards the beginning of our Romans series will help you. This is a bit easy to imagine in Dubai Sharjah Ajman because there's times when we see fires in our high towers and our skyscrapers and our buildings. And so just imagine this first of two scenes. In this first scene, you're alone and you're in your apartment and the whole tower is going up in flames. Fire behind you, fire beside you, fire all around you. You're standing at the edge of your balcony. You look down, there's no one there, and you're on the 21st floor. But the fire gets closer and closer, and so you decide, you know what? I'm going to fly. I'm going to flap my hands as fast as I can, and I'm going to jump as high and far as I can, and I'm going to save myself. And so you count to three, one, two, three, and you jump, and you flap your arms, and what happens? Well, certainly you don't land like I just landed. You probably land splat on the ground, and you die. And I'm going to actually, because I'm old, I'm going to walk all around back up the small little steps here. No, you, 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 you die. You are placing your faith in this strange object called your wings. Okay, now let's consider a second scenario, a second scene. You're there at the edge of your balcony. The flames are everywhere. They have engulfed you, beside you, behind you. You're at the edge. But this time you look down and you see fire trucks and you see a big trampoline-like structure, a big, big 
rubbery looking device. You're still 21 floors up and you're scared. You're nervous. You're thinking, is that really, is that, is that going to do it? Am I going to fall through it? Am I going to bounce off of it? Is it really going to save me? But you think, okay, okay, I'm going to do it. I'm nervous and I'm anxious and actually I'm not going to jump again. One time was enough for me and my body. But you jump, you jump, you jump. And it was an anxious faith. You were nervous. You were scared. It wasn't without fear. It wasn't a perfect faith. But it was faith, and it was faith in an object outside of yourselves. For us, our faith is in Christ, in God to save us. He's the object. It's not the strength of our faith that saves. A friend, if this is a battle in your heart, I want you to hear that. It's not the strength of your faith that says our faith is grounded in Jesus. The gospel starts with God. It's nothing that we have done. It's nothing that we can muster up in, our, in ourselves. Even faith is a gift. God has to give faith to us. Our faith is grounded in Jesus who is faithful, not in our own strength. If you think the strength of your faith saves, you're going to be consumed with yourself. If you think it's your faith that saves, you're going to keep thinking, is my faith strong enough? Is my faith real enough? You're going to start looking at yourself when you should be looking at Christ. And yet there still must be faith to be saved. There has to be a response, a repentance. This is a turning away from your old way of life and, and a jumping to Christ, a f- placing your faith in Jesus. We saw this in King David's life. A couple weeks ago when Alan Mandap on our staff team preached this great psalm of repentance and confession, Psalm 51. We see David had been a liar, been a, uh, an adulterer, a murderer. And yet he comes to God in repentance. He comes to God in faith. He comes to God with that beautiful psalm, Psalm 51, this great psalm of repentance. And if you weren't here that day, I encourage you to, to watch or listen to that sermon. We know Abraham was a repentant man too. How? Well, consider years later when Abraham was faced with an ultimate test of faith. God provided the promised child, but now God asks Abraham to sacrifice that child. Isaac was perhaps a teenager at the time. Don't know exactly, but God commands the unthinkable, Abraham, take your son, your only son, the son you love, the son you cherish, the son of your old age, your miracle son, your precious son, the one whom you love with all of your heart. Take that son, take Isaac, and I'm commanding you to go to the land of Moriah. Offer him up as a burnt offering. Abraham, sacrifice your son. Genesis 22, you can read it later on today in your Bibles. It shows us that Abraham went without hesitation. He was ready to give up what he loved most by faith. Albeit with great anguish, we could assume, they came near the spot. Isaac asks, Dad, there's fire, there's wood, but where's... Where's the lamb sacrifice? Not knowing yet that he was the sacrifice. Well, Abraham answers and says, God will provide the lamb. Now, we don't know exactly what happened next in Abraham and Isaac's conversation, 
The next thing we know, Isaac's there on the altar. Abraham's about to offer him up as a sacrifice. And right before Isaac's death, God, God breaks into the scene and God provides a substitute. There's a ram caught in the thicket, a replacement sacrifice for Isaac, a substitute for him. No, Abraham's faith was a struggle. But earlier, when God tells him to leave his homeland, Daniel read this for us earlier, when Abraham was, was asked to leave his homeland he, and his identity and everything he knew and everything he had, he left without a map, without a final destination. He obeyed and he went by faith. Now, there were ups like that. There were ups like Isaac on the altar, but there were downs, weren't there? There were lies. There were, there were dips in his faith. There were, there were mountaintops and there were valley bottoms. But Abraham had faith in God. It was never the strength of his faith which saved him, but the object. In a real way, then, Paul could write in these verses that Abraham did not waver in his faith. Well, lastly, our fourth point. We need to consider this for ourselves. Number four, saving faith. That's our final point, saving faith, verse 23. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. This wasn't just instruction for Abraham. And it wasn't just instruction for those Roman readers in that day. It's instruction for us today. This points back to Genesis 15, 6, when righteousness was credited to Abraham. Do you see what the apostle is saying here? God's way of salvation has not changed. It was written for Abraham's sake, but also for the Romans. And again, for us sitting in this ballroom in Dubai, continuing in verse 24, it will be counted to us who believe or have faith in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification, for our salvation, our declaration of righteousness. Here we have the gospel. The good news of Jesus, nice and clear, salvation is for anyone who places their faith in Jesus to save. Anyone who places their faith in the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, who places their faith in the Christian God, salvation is for you today. Friends, Jesus really did die. Jesus really did rise from the dead. Jesus really does reign right now, sitting at the right hand of the Father, ruling today on high. So friend, I ask you, do you have faith in God? That's the proper response to what God has already done. That's what makes you a Christian. So have faith in God. If you're not yet a believer, you can do this today from your seat. Right now. This is why we don't do a physical altar call. I don't know if you know what an altar call is. Now, there might be a, a good way to do it, but when done poorly... It's when a preacher will say, if anyone wants to come down the aisle and walk up front, they may come in order to receive Christ and to become a Christian. And we don't do physical altar calls here at our gatherings because we don't want to confuse what saves. 
Walking up front doesn't save you. Raising your hand doesn't save you. Praying a specific prayer doesn't save you. Being baptized doesn't save you. Now, perhaps you prayed a prayer or walked down an aisle and had faith. It's not, it's not putting away, it's not looking down upon maybe how you came to faith. But friends, those things don't save But what we do at Redeemer most weeks is a spiritual altar call. It's a call from the front. It's a call to you to have faith in Jesus. It's an inward reality. It's a posture of the heart. And so today I ask you, friend, do you have faith in Christ? Because here's the reality, and here's my burden as we get back into the book of Romans. And here's what I've been praying the last few days as I've looked at this text and as I've prayed through this text on faith. Here's what's been the burden of my heart. It's this. It's that everyone in this room right now, man, woman, child, every single person in this room is either a Christian or not a Christian. I mean, did you catch that? There's there's no middle ground. There's no middle way. There's no third way. There's no in-between. Every single one of us gathered today in this ballroom at the Millennium Plaza Hotel on Shakeside Road either is a follower of Christ or not. That's it. And so here's what I want to ask you today to the children in the room, tweens, teens, university students, young adults, older adults, all of us, do you have faith in Christ? This is the spiritual altar call. Do you have faith in Christ? Are you a Christian? I'm asking that question to you now, not that you raise your hand, not that you give me an audible response, but I mean it seriously. Are you a Christian? I want you to ask yourself, am I really a Christian? And I want you to ask yourself that this very week, by next Sunday, have an answer to that. It's a yes or no question. Yes or no. Youth and tweens, share with your parents and youth leaders. Parents, talk to your children about this. Talk with the person who brought you here today. Discuss with your community group leader. Maybe in your community groups this week, you take the first minutes even before you jump into the next text in chapter 5 of Romans and just talk about it. Be honest about it. Let's be honest here at Redeemer Church. Hey, I'm not a Christian. I'm seeking. I'm trying to believe, but I'm struggling. Or, hey, I just came to faith and I want to celebrate with you. Let's be honest. There's nothing more important than this. Everyone in this room is either Christian or not a Christian. Oh, friend, this has a sense of urgency behind it. Talk to someone in our connections team afterwards. Talk to me. I'm going to stand up front, and I'm going to stay here as long as it takes. I'll stay till 8 p.m. if people want to talk about this. And I'll pray with you. That prayer won't save you, but if you, want, if you become a believer during the service, you want to come, I'd love to pray a prayer of thanksgiving over you and pray for you. I'd love to talk about the things you're wrestling with. Talk to one another, maybe the person who's sitting next to you. Ask yourself, am I really a Christian? Years ago, I had a conversation with Mildred. Mildred's one of our members and leaders. She had been meeting with ladies in the church for quite some time, regularly studied the Bible for a couple years. 
She would, she would meet with different ladies. She met with the, our, our deaconess of women's training, Leanne, and they would study the scriptures together. Many had shared their faith with Mildred. Mildred had been so close to the church. Mildred had been attending our worship gatherings for some time. She had been around the gospel. She had been in the church, but she had not placed her faith in Christ. The two of us one day were standing outside the tennis stadium in Garhud, February 26th. 2014, the Dubai tennis tournament was going on, and Mildred and I were standing outside the stadium, and I said, Mildred, Mildred, you've been around the church, you've been in the church, you've been hearing the gospel taught, you've been hearing the Bible. Why are you still not a follower of Christ? Mildred, you must place your faith in Christ. And I told her that not making a decision is making a decision. So holding off on making a decision to be a Christian is making a decision that you're not. And I challenged her that night. I challenged her then to make, to make sure of her salvation that very night. We don't know what tomorrow holds. A few hours later, I know exactly where I was standing there in Garhud when Mildred called me. She wanted to tell me that she had placed her faith in Jesus for salvation. It'll be 10 years this February of Mildred walking with God. Mildred understood the gospel that Jesus saves and at last placed her faith in him. And she understood the urgency of which I'm communicating to you today. We're not guaranteed tomorrow. Oh, friend, you're either born again or not. Be honest with where you're at. Take my challenge to Mildred as a challenge to you corporately. Don't wait I said by next Sunday, maybe even by tonight, maybe today is the day of your salvation. Maybe right now, in your seat, you place your faith in Jesus to save you. I'm pleading with you who don't believe, believe. 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 Have faith in our God, if you do just as God provided a substitute for Isaac on that altar, Jesus will be your substitute because you and I, we deserve that death on the cross. You and I have sinned against a holy and perfect God, and we deserve death and judgment. We deserve the wrath of God poured on us. We deserve eternal separation from the goodness and glory of God. But Christ took God's wrath in our place if we believe, if we have faith in him. And friend, I want to tell you, don't wait till you have things together. Don't wait till your life is perfect. You'll never get there. I don't know what happened last night in your life, but don't wait to clean that up. You can't fully clean it up. I don't know what mistakes you've made. I don't know what sins you've committed. I don't know your past. Certainly don't know all of your past. I don't know your present, but I know you need Jesus. There will be ups, there will be downs. But friend, today acknowledge your need for salvation and place your faith in Christ. Let's pray. Oh Father, you alone save. You alone save through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We pray that you would give the gift of faith to anyone in this room who's not yet a follower of Christ. Father, would you save souls even now? Give this gift. 
Father, for those of us that follow Christ, strengthen our faith. Strengthen our faith for those mountaintop moments to give glory to you and strengthen our faith to let you carry us through the valley of the shadow of death during those dark moments when we are in despair and we feel like all is hopeless, like Abraham and Sarah at 100 years old, as good as dead in a womb that was dead. Lord, let us have that kind of faith. Father, faith is a gift. Give that to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.